Matthew chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a pew Bible in front of you. You can look at page 826, I believe. And for this message, it would do, do you well to follow along as we will take a jet tour through the last seven or so chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. This morning, I want to take you on a trip back in time, roughly 1,990 years ago, to a bustling Jerusalem, a time of political unrest, a time approaching one of the great, three great festivals in Jewish culture. It is the time of the Passover. People are flooding all around to Jerusalem, the holy city, from the north and the south, the east and the west, devout Jews going to celebrate the Passover. And we will find ourselves in this passage of Scripture considering these last eight days, starting on Sunday and ending on Sunday. Just to set the context, Jesus and the disciples are also traveling and finding their way to Jerusalem. Anytime you would read that people are traveling to Jerusalem, they are always going up because the elevation of Jerusalem is higher than the surrounding areas. So they are ascending up to Jerusalem. Jesus has just come from Jericho where he's healed some men. He's foretold his death a third time, but they are coming in celebration of the Passover. So here we have it. A few days before the triumphal entry, there are waves and waves of people making their way to Jerusalem in the masses, thousands and thousands of people. Jesus is one of them with a great crowd that has been following him. He is well known at this point. It has been three years of his earthly ministry. He has done many mighty works and miracles. His preaching is phenomenal. Many people are hailing him to be the Messiah, the King of the Jews. Matthew writes his gospel to show you that he, in fact, is the King. And so they are making their way to Jerusalem, knowing that Friday is coming. And so what we would notice here first is Sunday, the first Sunday, known as the triumphal entry or If you are into the Christian calendar, you would call it Palm Sunday. Look at verse or chapter 21. There's no way I'm reading seven chapters to you, so we will just summarize them as we work through. But the king is welcomed on Sunday, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. The dusty roads leading up to Jerusalem are laid with palm branches, and Jesus gets on a donkey to fulfill the prophecy in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. And so these palm branches are laid down so that the dust would not kick up on the king's feet. And he has received this royal welcome. As the palm branches are laid, it is as though they are rolling out the red carpet for Jesus as he enters into the city. For more information about this festival, this Passover festival that they are about to celebrate, I would call your attention to Exodus chapter 12, verses 14 through 20. Time does not permit us to go there, but you can make a note of that if you want more details. But we see the king is welcomed. And what is the reception that the king gets on Sunday? Hosanna! Quite literally meaning save us! 
This is messianic language. And then they say this other term here. As the people look to Jesus as he enters into the village. And they say, son of David. Son of David. This goes back all the way to the covenant that God made with David. That on your throne will rise one. A kingdom upon your throne through your line. Hosanna to the son of David. Verse 9, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now people are hearing this and they know what this language means. This is messianic language. Now you notice here verse 10, it puts the whole city on alert. Messianic language is dangerous language. The Romans feared revolt in Jerusalem. It has been a city of unrest. It is the holy city. The people of Israel have lived there, but they are under Roman occupation. And so when you hear this messianic language, this this king, the anointed one, the fear is revolt, rebellion in the city. And so now on Sunday, the king is welcomed and everybody is on alert. The whole city is put on notice. They are stirred up saying, who is this? Verse 11, we know who this is. And the crowd says, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. But we must remember, Friday is coming. Now this crowd here on Sunday demonstrates a timeless tragedy that we have seen throughout time. People are more interested in the Jesus they want than the Jesus they need. This very crowd that screams, Hosanna, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest to the son of David, will on Friday say, crucify him. Because the Jesus that they wanted and the Jesus that they realized that was in the town was different. That he is not going to deliver according to their thoughts that they had about him. So they turn on him. There are lessons to be learned for our own edification and application on every day of this week. But this is Sunday. The king is welcomed. We don't have much more details concerning Sunday. He leaves. He's staying out in Bethany at a house of Simon the leper, we would know. But let's enter into Monday. Monday, the famous account, Jesus enters into the temple. This is where he flips over the money tables. You would notice this is Monday. The king is outraged. Verses 12 through 17. Jesus enters into the temple as any devout Jew would do. But to his amazement, he finds money changers. And he finds the one-stop shop, convenience store of the sacrifice shop there in the perimeter of the temple. Now this money exchanging racket that was taking place and the sacrifice shop were not bad in and of themselves, but their location and the practice was. Jesus finds in the temple the commercial district. And this outrages the king. The temple is to be, as we would see here in this passage, it is to be a house of prayer. But Jesus says it has been turned into the commercial district. The money changers, historians have noted this, that the money changers would take Greek and Roman currency 
to exchange it for temple currency because the temple had its own currency. But it came at a cost, half a shekel for the temple tax. This was their racket. This was their way of making money, profiting off of people in their currency exchange. And then there was this convenience store that we see where we would hear of people that sold pigeons. It is a one-stop shop for all your sacrifice needs. As you would be traveling, this is not a bad thing in and of itself. As many of the pilgrims would be traveling to Jerusalem, they did not have the ability to carry everything that they needed for their sacrifices. So that they would arrive in Jerusalem and they would be able to go to the convenience store and get their pigeons and get their wood and get the things that they needed to make sacrifices. The problem is it didn't belong in the temple. And so Jesus outraged. Zeal for his father's house consumes him. And he overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. When I think about the convenience store of the sacrifices, you truly get what you pay for when it comes to convenience. You ever run to CVS for a gallon of milk? It's very expensive. They've overpriced these things in order to make money. This is why Jesus says that they have turned the house of the Lord into a den of robbers. Verse 13. But we must notice here on Monday, Jesus hits them where it hurts. You want to hit someone where it hurts? Go after their economy. Go to their wallet. If you want to make enemies quick, cut off the source of revenue. This would be similar here to cracking down on the mob in the 80s for the the extortioners. The problem is you might find yourself wearing cement shoes at the bottom of Narragansett Bay. Understand this, Friday is coming for Jesus. The religious powers here, we would see in the response to Jesus cleansing the temple on Monday, they're angry at him. They don't like him. And to add fuel to the fire, there are children walking around saying, Hosanna! Hosanna to the son of David! They're crying out, but they were, verse 15, they were indignant. They were outraged. They were angry. Notice here that self-righteous religious people get fixated on what they deem to be an issue. He disrupted the status quo. He disrupted the temple economy. He set straight what was crooked, but they wanted to keep it crooked. They're thinking if God didn't want us to do this, then why has he allowed it? And their anger and obstinance is only fueled as others praise him. We would notice there at the end of this passage, and Jesus would even say to them, yes, have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. Verse 17, and leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Nightfall on Monday. Friday is coming. Tuesday being one of the longest recorded days in Matthew's gospel, Tuesday is often the forgotten day. 
Tuesday of this week in 1990 or some years ago, the king is challenged. He enters back into the city. Chapter 21, verses 18 through chapter 25, verse 46. A very long day for Jesus. But this is the day that seals his fate. We think it might have been Gethsemane, it might have been Judas, it might have been Friday. I would submit to you, Tuesday is the nail in the coffin. The day begins here with Jesus as he enters back into the city. He demonstrates his authority of cursing a fig tree. Why? Because the whole point of Tuesday is the authority of Jesus displayed in his teaching. So he, de- he demonstrates his authority cursing a fig tree because his authority is to be a challenge to this day. And then in verse 23 of Matthew 21 and following, the face-off begins. The scribes and the Pharisees look straight at him. No doubt they're in the temple or around that area. And they're going to go right after Jesus. They certainly do. And they ask this question. By what authority, verse 23, are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? They're thinking, this is a great question. Easy. You, who do you think you are? You have this large crowd. You're just a Nazarene. By what authority do you think you can come into this temple and flip tables and disrupt everything that we have going on? Who do you think you are, Jesus? Problem is, they're not going to like the answer they receive. Jesus stumps them, as he will do throughout this day. What he does is he asks them a question, revealing that only honest questions deserve honest answers. They're asking him leading questions, and he does not answer them. Verse 27, and he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Moving on from there, Jesus now rifles off three parables directly attacking the scribes and the Pharisees. And what he says in these three parables is basically this. You think you're religious. You think you're law-keeping. You think you're doing everything right. You will not inherit the kingdom of God because you are basing it off of your own self-righteousness. To you, the kingdom is not to be inherited. And they know it. And he directly attacks them for their wickedness. For they're thinking that morality is the means of salvation. That law keeping will make you better in the sight of God. The law is there to reveal you need Jesus. The law has been given to show that no one can stand up to the righteous requirements of God's law. But the God man himself. And so Jesus rifles off the parable of the tenants. The parable of the two sons. The parable of the wedding feast. Three parables condemning them. Verse 46 of chapter 21. They started, they were indignant. First, they're asking questions. Who is this man as he comes in? Second day, they're indignant against him. Third day, they're seeking now to arrest him. Verse 46. They feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Well, Tuesday is only in the morning now. We'll continue on through Tuesday. 
And so now they devise three ways in which they're going to arrest Jesus, picking up in verse 15 of chapter 22. And the first thought is, we're going to get him on ethical issues. We're going to get Jesus on civil issues. We're going to get this man silenced away from us. He's a nuisance. And so they come up with this cleverly devised plan. Let's ask him about paying taxes. We'll get him there. Fail. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And render to God the things that are God. So they strike out. There's one strike against them as they seek to trip Jesus up on ethical issues. So now they think, let's bring it up. Let's turn it up a notch. Now we're going to try to trip Jesus up on theological issues. That doesn't sound smart. So they bring up theological issues. The Sadducees ask about the resurrection. We'll get him now. So in the resurrection, which the Sadducees don't even believe in a resurrection, they're going to trip him up, asking him about marriage. And we would note from this passage, they fail. I just want to make a note here. You don't ever want to try to get into a theological debate with Jesus. He is theology. And so what does he say to them who try to trip him up? He says, no, you are wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. So now they've struck out twice. Ethical issues, we can't get them. Theological issues, we, we, we can't seem to trip them up. So they, all right, here's the great, here's, we're gonna get him on moral issues. We're gonna get him on the law. Verse 34, so they say, we need to bring in a lawyer. We're going to call the heavy hitter. And he's coming in. This is what we're going to do. We're going to get one who knows the law and he's going to come to him and he's going to trip him up because he's going to ask him a question that he has to prioritize what's better in the law. And so if he says this is better than this, then we'll say that Jesus doesn't really understand the priority of the law. If we get him to put one command over another, we'll get him. What happens? They fail. Strike three. He says, teacher, verse 36, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this, and this is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus did right there was he took the whole law, summarized it in just a pithy statement. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And the whole here goes. I got nothing. Strike three, Jesus has silenced them once again. It is interesting to note that now Jesus, verse 41, flips the script. They came after him with, he gives them three parables. They come after him with three ways in which they can try to accuse him or try to get him to trip up. And now Jesus turns and asks them three questions. In one verse. And in verse 46, the end of chapter 22, no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. They gave up. We need to try something else. He's outsmarted us. He's like the smartest person we've ever met, ever. He knows theology really well. 
He knows the law. It's like he's almost perfect in everything. And that outrages people. So by this point, the end of 22, it's mid-morning in the temple. And Jesus, in chapter 23, preaches himself to the cross. In chapter 23 here, Jesus drops the hammer. A series of seven woes are pronounced out of the mouth of Christ. At this point, many have seen this face-off in the temple. Crowds have been coming as they're seeing this dialogue back and forth. And people are coming after Jesus and he's outsmarting them. And he's, and he's, and he's, and he's turning them on their own game. And now Jesus takes center stage and he will do the rest of the talking here. And Jesus, as I said, pronounces seven woes in chapter 23. What do I mean by woes? He's saying trouble or distress be upon you. This is aggressive. This is offensive. This is directed right at the scribes and the Pharisees. For Jesus, the cross is ever before him at this point. Remember, right before he enters on Sunday, he tells them that the sea that we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. Friday is coming. And now in chapter 23, the time has come. It's as though he took the gloves off. This is bare knuckles at this point. And it is time to expose these self-righteous scribes and Pharisees for who they are, hypocrites. Just to summarize some of the things in which he says to them in chapter 23. He says, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Imagine that right there in the temple. Everyone goes silent. What did he just say? Full of greed and self-indulgence. You outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It's uncomfortable at this point. You don't want to leave, but you don't want to be there. You don't know what to do. You're just sitting there like... For the scribes and Pharisees, the indignation of Monday turned into the absolute wrath and rage on Tuesday. The king was challenged on this day. And at the end of chapter 23 it is safe to conclude that Jesus has now preached himself to the cross. Brothers and sisters, do not be afraid to follow in that example. Friday is coming. This is the events of Tuesday morning. Now Tuesday afternoon, Jesus leaves. You would see in chapter 24, he goes out to the Mount of Olives with his disciples, and rightfully so, preaches about the end of the age. Jesus, there in chapter 24 and chapter 5, Matthew's final discourse of Jesus, Jesus preaches about, teaches on three things, the destruction of the temple, his return, and the end of human history. Just to 
side note, just to make understanding of what Jesus is preaching about in chapters 24 and 25, you would understand that he says in verse 2, he talks about the destruction of the temple, and then the disciples ask three questions. The rest of chapter 24 and 25 is Jesus answering the three questions, the destruction of the temple, his return, and the end of the age. I just wanted to make note of that so you don't need to bring in late 20th century in-time science fiction to understand chapters 24 and 25. Read it in its context. But then, this is the last sermon of the king. And he concludes with the final judgment where the king is seated on the throne judging all the peoples of the earth. Jesus is king and judge. And he will divide the sheep from the goats. And some will enter into eternal life while others into eternal damnation. Both of which are eternal without end. Then comes Wednesday. We don't get much on Wednesday. And I believe we don't get much on Wednesday because Tuesday was a very long day. Tuesday was a very long day. The king rested on Wednesday. Jesus opens up chapter 26, reminding us that Friday is coming. And then little is said throughout 26 concerning Jesus. There is a burial, there's an anointing of Jesus, which is foreshadowing his burial, his death and burial, which is about to come. But Tuesday or Wednesday is still a very significant day in this week. We kind of get this behind the scenes look. Scene change from Jesus with his disciples to we get this picture in, with, the, with the chief priests and the high priest in verses 3 through 5. They go to Caiaphas' house, and now the plot thickens. And they're saying, okay, how do we get him? Because now, verse 4 of 26, they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth. And now, it's not just arresting him, now they want to kill him. This is the result of the seven woes. He preached himself to the cross. But they don't know what to do, not during the feast, maybe after the Passover. Well, that's not God's timing. No, he will be our Passover lamb. So they are not sure. They're conspiring. How do we silence him? But it's enough to be angry. But now they've turned their anger into hatred, into plotting and killing. Wednesday is the calm before the storm. So this is the first significant event that takes place, but there's a second one. Verses 14 and 16. Judas does what Judas was destined to do. The son of perdition carries out his mission. While everybody is relaxing, preparing for Passover, Judas still upset that that expensive ointment was used on Jesus when we could have saved it because Judas is Mr. Moneybags, always thinking about the bottom line, always caring about the money. And Judas is still upset. He takes off. Who knows why? Maybe he says, I'm going to get provisions for the Passover. But he enters back into the city. He breaks away from the crowd with all the disciples who are outside the city in Bethany, relaxing. And Judas makes his way into the city. And when he makes his way into the city, he goes, as as was put into his heart to do, he goes to the chief priests and the scribes. And he makes a deal. The great betrayal. For 30 pieces of silver, says, yeah, I'll sell out Jesus. It is the betrayal of the ages. Motivated by greed and selfish ambition, 
he agrees to sell out the Son of God. Well, the plan's going to work. The religious leaders got their guy. They've got their inside man. This might happen sooner than we think. And from that moment, verse 16, he saw an opportunity to betray him. Friday is coming. Enter into Thursday. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, this being the Thursday, they look to where they can take the Passover meal together. Thursday, the king is betrayed. Chapter 26, verses 17 through the rest of the chapter. What we see here in this account on Thursday, preparations are made for the Passover meal. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, the meal that we take regularly in remembrance of him. He foretells how everything is going to go down. He predicts, as a prophet rightly does, exactly what is going to happen. He is going to be betrayed. His blood is going to be poured out for the forgiveness of sins, and all the disciples will fall away for a time. Peter is going to outright deny him three times. Even to a little girl, he is going to turn and be scared. I don't know the man. I don't, I've never met the man. Peter, you walked with him for three years. Peter, you, came, you quit your fishing business to be with this man. Peter, you confessed him as the Christ, the son of the living God. What do you mean you don't know the man? The time has come. So they take the meal. Judas is sent out to do what Judas is to do. And we enter into the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus enters into the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. And there, look at verse 39 of chapter 26. And going a little further into the garden, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Oh, brothers and sisters, let's not lose sight of that final statement. Nevertheless. Not as I will, but as you will. Jesus here in the garden the night before his betrayal, the moments before his betrayal, the day before his execution, he is in agony. Luke describes it as he is sweating drops of blood, not as though they are blood. As he is sweating blood. In this moment, in this time in the garden, as he's there praying, in the anguish of his soul, it is at this moment that the full realization of what he was about to undertake is leveled upon him. And he says, let this cup pass from me. This cup, the cup of the wrath of God that he is about to endure. And in the anguish of his soul, he prays out. But what we see here is the triumph of submission. Nevertheless, I will continue and carry out the will of the Father. I will continue to carry out the covenant of redemption that we made in eternity past. We will see this through. I will endure the cross and despise the shame. So Jesus, in the garden, in that moment of, of agony of soul, walks out through that prayer, 
the champion of our salvation. Triumphant. If the battle was to be lost, it was going to be lost in the garden right there, and it was not. Just as the battle was lost in the first garden in Eden, so now here in Gethsemane, the battle is won. Because in the garden of Eden, it is though, as Adam and Eve say, nevertheless, our will be done. Here in the garden of Gethsemane, it is Jesus saying, nevertheless, your will be done. It is the great reversal. The curse is to be reversed. So that in him, a new creation will be dawning on the first day of the week. And so what do we see here in this new Eden? Judas shows up. Judas shows up with a great crowd. Swords and clubs. They were expecting a brawl. They were ready for a fight. Instead, Judas comes and kisses him on the cheek to sell out Jesus. This is where we get the term Judas kiss. An act of betrayal, especially one disguised as a gesture of friendship. From the garden there, Jesus is taken before the high priest. This is a long night, a long Thursday night. Jesus is taken and brought before the high priest like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. He was silent. And so as he's there that night before the council of the high priest, he's been arrested. They've taken him. And in frustration, the high priest just screams out to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. It's in frustration. And once again, the champion of our salvation stands bold and replies, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man. Ah, this would have irked them even more. The Son of Man, that's Daniel. That's right there with the Ancient of Days. He says, that's Ezekiel, the Son of Man. As Jesus applies that name to himself, he's applying a divine term. He says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven to which they tear their clothes. This is blasphemy. And they chant, he deserves death. And they spit on him. And they struck him. And they mocked him. Friday is coming. A long night turns into an early morning. Friday is now here. Chapter 27. The king is killed. We recognize here at the beginning of chapter 27, Judas in a moment of regret ends his own life. He could not bear the weight of his guilt, but instead of seeking forgiveness, he took the easy way out. Pilate, Jesus is delivered over to the civil magistrate, to Pilate, who is the Roman governor and ruler of the area in Jerusalem. Pilate knows that he is innocent, but fears a revolt. And so Pilate is a coward. Look at verse 24. This is so important of chapter 27. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. 
And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released from them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. I want you to think a moment on that terrible, terrible statement that those people made. His blood be on us and on our children. I can't help but think the words of Joseph, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Because 50 days later, after this event, comes the next festival, and it's Pentecost. And the same people that said, crucify him, crucify him, would be sitting under the preaching of Peter. And Peter would look boldly at that crowd and say, you crucified the Son of God. But he would end his message like this. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The reality of that statement here in Matthew is in fact the blood of Christ was on those people and on their children and all who did believe. Because his blood is the means by which forgiveness is realized. It is the means by which forgiveness is actualized. And so these same people that are crying out, crucify him, and the blood be upon our children, are also among those who were redeemed by the blood of Christ. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. There are people in heaven right now worshiping the Lamb of God who saw to his execution. Oh, the grace of God. Jesus bore the guilt and sin of killing Jesus. And so we have the crucifixion. We have reached the high point of Friday. Let us read this, picking up in verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots, Then they sat down and kept watch over him. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. And if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests, With the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. For if he desires him, for if he said, for he said, I am the Son of God. In this moment, we see the king of glory hanging upon a tree. Naked, exposed, a mockery for all of the world. Foolishness to Gentiles, an offense to Jews. Cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. 
But we must understand that in this moment, hanging on the tree, the God-man was not suffering under the ridicule of Jews or the chastisement of Romans. No, there was a greater chastisement that was upon him. As we've even sung it, he was hanging on that cross, bearing the weight of the wrath of the Father against sin. It was a cosmic act that was taking place. Nobody recognized it in the moment. It was atonement being made. This was predicted hundreds of years ago. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. As one whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And here is the glorious truth, brethren. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Isaiah 53.10, in this moment that we see the God-man hanging upon the cross, suffering under the anguish of sin that is being placed upon his shoulders, we would notice here that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Literally, it pleased the Father to crush the Son. He has put him to grief. He hangs on the cross under the curse of the Father. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. So as you think about Jesus crucified, as he hangs there on the cross, bearing the agony, bearing the shame, Remember, he is the only law keeper that has ever crossed the horizon of this earth. There's only ever been one law keeper. There's only ever been one covenant keeper. There's only ever been one who could take the law of God and say that this is the greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and keep it. And he's the only one who ever loved his neighbor as himself perfectly. We ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Brothers and sisters, that happened one time. And he signed up for it. The only time bad things happened to a good person was when Christ hung upon the cross. A death he did not die for a life that we cannot live. My sin imputed to him His perfect righteousness credited to my account. Clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is your only hope in life and in death. And so as Jesus hangs upon that cross, smitten, stricken, and afflicted, it is as though the Father continues to heap the sins of his people upon him. Think about it. What would it cost you to pay for your sins? It would cost you one lifetime of eternity in hell to satisfy the justice for your sins. Jesus takes your lifetime of sin upon his shoulders and then he takes another person and then he takes the sin of this room and he's bearing that chastisement under the weight of the fury of the wrath of God, the anguish of his soul. 
to the point where Jesus finally cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, God treated him as the most vile creature that has ever walked across this earth. As God made him to be sin who knew no sin, he was treated as the most wicked of all. You know every one of the sins you've ever committed. If you are in Christ, that's on his shoulders. If there's a murderer in heaven, Jesus is treated as a murderer on the cross. If there is somebody who is a sexual, immoral person, Jesus is treated as the sexually immoral on the cross. If there is somebody who is a pedophile in heaven, Jesus is treated as a pedophile. If there is somebody who has practiced homosexuality in their life, Jesus is treated and dies for that sin too. Every manner of sin by which people are in heaven that have committed has been born on the shoulders of the Son of God and the Father treated him that way. Jesus doesn't die for sin as a con. Concept. Jesus took names with him to the cross. He died for specific sins. He died for the sins of his people. And he discharged every one of them in full. So when he says, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? In that moment, the father turns his back on the son because he cannot bear the sight of the vileness in which his son is carrying upon his shoulders. Jesus is not a sinner. Jesus never became a sinner, but he died in the place of sinners so that you might be forgiven. To spare us, he could not spare him. God who did not spare his own son. Why? So he can look at you and with justice satisfied and grace extended, he can say, come. Come. Cast your sins to the side. Come, lay your burdens at the cross. Come that you might know life, that you might be forgiven. It is the only way we can be forgiven. God forsook his unforsakable in order to love the unlovable. In verse 50 here, on the cross, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He gave up the ghost. At this point, the king is dead. And in this moment here, this cosmic moment, this moment that shaped even the universe, on this Black Friday, all creation feels it. The curtain of the temple is torn in two, signifying that the last sacrifice has just been offered. But also, the ground quakes at the death of the Creator. There is a great earthquake. The earth trembles. We must ask the question, is this necessary? This is gruesome blood. Sounds like God's a tyrant. Sounds like this is just cosmic child abuse. Was this necessary? Why did Jesus have to die? Because you are a sinner. And I am a sinner. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Quite literally, because we need a penal substitutionary atonement. What do I mean by that? Jesus bears the penalty for our sins. He stands in our place as the substitute, and he makes atonement in that he covers us for what we have done. We need bloodshed. Friday is here. 
but I want to remind you, Sunday was coming. What we have in verses 62 through 68 is silent Saturday. The king is sealed. Brother Gene gave great expositional thoughts on this passage yesterday at men's prayer. We see here in this passage, he's taken down from the cross. His side is pierced. His legs are not broken because that would break the prophecy. He's buried in a borrowed tomb. Not even one of the 12 were there to help their leader. No, it's Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who publicly identify with a crucified Jesus. They take him, he's buried in a borrowed tomb. They set a seal and Roman soldiers and they roll the, roll the stone behind. Matthew wants to make it very clear to his readers, Jesus is very dead. Jesus is not in a coma. Jesus is not hurting really badly, needing life support. Jesus is very, very dead. And they put him in this grave and they put a stone, then they put guards, then they put a seal. He wants you to know that nobody was going into that tomb. Nobody. Your life would be ended before you were able to get access into that tomb. And all they had to do was wait till Monday. Because remember that what he says there, that imposter. This is what the scribes and the Pharisees, they go to Pilate. They say, that imposter said that he was going to rise from the dead. He said it'd take three days. Well, if we can just hold off till Monday, we'll put an end to this sect, these Christ people. We just got to make it to Monday. That's all. So can you give us some guards? Can you seal the tomb? Sure, sure. Well, we can make it to Monday. So they, they send in the armed forces to guard the tomb. Never in their wildest imagination did they think someone was coming out. So they seal the outside. Think about the disciples on that day. Distraught no doubt, crying, weeping, feeling like utter failures. We deserted him. Now he's dead. This is Passover. This is, this is supposed to be high, high, high Passover, high Sabbath, right? The day that the Passover on the Sabbath is, is a high day, and yet to them it is the lowest day. Our Savior's dead. Now forever, we're just gonna remember this day as the day after Jesus' death, and they mourn. The truth is, the Passover was always leading up and pointing to this moment. It is not just coincidence that when the Israelites are in Egypt and God says, take a lamb, a lamb without blemish and put the blood over the doorpost, that it's just, oh, happens to us. No, Jesus, as Paul makes it clear, is our Passover lamb. So that the angel of death passes over because the blood covers the people. You see? It's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And so they're mourning on this Saturday. They didn't understand. But the reality is Sunday was coming. And so now we enter in Chapter 28, that glorious Sunday morning. Picking up in verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. 
And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Brothers and sisters, the king is raised. Peter explains this best. When he says in his sermon at Pentecost, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What a great statement, brothers and sisters. Death was not strong enough to keep him. Death has never been matched by this one before. Death has always prevailed against humanity throughout history, but not this one. No, there's something different about this one. He is very God, a very God, fully God, fully man. It is impossible for the God-man to be held in the grip of death. That's what Peter tells us. As I alluded to even earlier, this happened on the first day of the week. Brothers and sisters, why are you here on the first day of the week? It is because every Sunday is a resurrection celebration. That's why the Christians in Acts 20 met on the first day of the week because this was such a monumental event that they couldn't wait once a year to do this. So every Sunday, we're resurrection people. We're Christ people. So we're gonna gather and we're gonna worship the risen Christ. It is also a sign of the new covenant secured. This is why we do not meet on Saturdays. This is why we do not observe the Sabbath on a Saturday. Jesus Christ is our rest, the risen Savior. And so, as we think about these eight days, and we think about the resurrection of Jesus, why is it significant? I want you to hear the words that Jesus says, to John in the Revelation, he says, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. Jesus resurrected cannot die. He is alive forevermore. Up until this point, we've been given some application, but mostly just information. What are you supposed to do with this? What are you supposed to do about these eight days that changed the course of human history? We are not about information. We are for transformation. We must take this truth, and it must go from our heads to our hearts to our hands. We must digest it that we might be transformed by this truth, this gospel So, there are two other very significant days that I want to call your attention to. And the first is today. Understand this, the king is reigning now. But there's something also significant about today. We would read in Acts 4.12, salvation is offered in his name. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Paul says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You might have come here this morning because you feel like that's the thing you need to do. It's Easter Sunday. You might have come here this morning because a relative of yours asked you to come and you obliged. Whatever your reason for being here, I want to tell you from the bottom of my heart with true sincerity, I am so glad you are here. For whatever the reason is, God brought you here this day to hear this word. And I want you, and I would plead with you to receive the free offer of the gospel. That Jesus Christ came and died for sinners. And that he was raised from the dead on the third day, vindicated by the Father, alive forevermore. And that there is salvation in his name. And that if you repent of your sins and believe on Christ, you will be saved. We are to trust this. We are not to assent to the information. We are to be transformed by this information. To live a life of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, the God-man. I would encourage you, I would challenge you, I would plead with you to come to the cross this morning. Come to the cross of Jesus Christ where we see love and mercy and wrath and justice all meet. Behold the God-man dying in your place, bearing your burden of sin. And then as you spend time at that cross and you see the cost that, it, that, that Jesus paid for your sins, make haste to an empty tomb. Make haste to an empty tomb and cast yourself before the risen Savior. There is mercy for you. Every manner of sin will be forgiven. You have not sinned so far that you cannot be forgiven. Will you accept the free offer of the gospel? Will you receive Christ by faith? For as many as received him, he gave the right to be called children of God. What will you do with this message? So today is the day of salvation. And then there's our future Sunday. Christian, you might be going through struggles right now. You might be weary in the fight. You might be tired, downcast. Remember, Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. We too are promised a resurrection. Our hope is not just in this life only. If so, we are most of all to be pitied. No, 1 Corinthians 5 or 15, 22, for in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Christian, no matter your struggle, Sunday is coming. Our eternal rest with Jesus in heaven. So be encouraged. You have been made partakers of the divine nature. Sunday was coming. Rejoice. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Father, we thank you for the life, the ministry, the death that your Son died in our place. Lord, that he did not stay dead, though, three days and rose from the dead, that you raised him up, you vindicated your son. Truly, he is your son in whom you are well pleased and we would do well to listen to him. Father, make this gospel a reality in every single heart, mind, and soul in this room.
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.